Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 20th of September 2017. Today's panel is myself, Martin. Hello, I'm Ali. And William. So we're going to chat about a few different things that have caught our eye in the recent uh, month just in the news. There is, of course, the uh, spectacular demise of the Cassini space probe. Um, <laughs> there is a not so little but not so big black hole to talk about. And also an image of a surface of a star, um, which is one of the first times this has been done. That's the whole story. <laughs> just, you've just done the story. <laughs> just ruined it. I'm oh, sorry. We'll, we'll, See you next month. <laughs> we'll, come to that, we'll come to that in more detail. So the first thing I want to do is just apologise if I feel a little bit unprepared this time round. Um, <laughs> Novelty. <laughs> unusual for me, I realise. Um, it's because I've only just got out of the lab after working on a project that we're due to deliver in about eight days. And as soon as we're finished this recording, I am going back into the lab. And what is the project, Marnie? So the project is one called Hypercam, and I've been working on it for about three years now. Uh, it's the first thing I've really worked on going from right from the initial design through to delivery. Um, and it's a five-channel high-speed photometer. So essentially this has five cameras attached to it, all of which are co-aligned, so they're looking at the same patch of sky at the same time. And that's so every pixel looks at the same pixel as every other camera. So this is about 15 microns, 15 thousandths of a millimeter that everything's aligned to. I love that you're coming in with, with the optical alignment as the first part of the description. It's the most complicated <laughs> part of the whole thing. I, I, I concede that, but I think like as a terms of a top overview, what does it do, Martin? It makes Martin a slightly you. paler shade of white than usual. <laughs> Just I haven't something. seen the sun for seven days. What this does is it looks at the brightness of objects in five different colours simultaneously, and it does so very, very quickly. It has kilohertz frame rates, so it's taking thousands of pictures per second. It's really unusual in astronomy. Most of the mm. time in astronomy, an exposure is of the t- terms of minutes to hours. To days. My, my spectra on the WHT are half hour exposures. It's mm. great for going stargazing while you're waiting for the data to come in. But. <laughs> so this is really, really fast and it just gives you a different view into the, the constantly changing nature of lots of objects in the night sky. Yeah. So that's due to get shipped next week if everything goes to plan um, mm. and I'll hopefully start doing science very, very quickly. And it's aligned to 15th And it's aligned to 15th Cool. <laughs> but... Exciting other news, things that are, are more exciting, I suppose, that have been in the news an awful lot more, would be Cassini. Sad news. Sad news. It is like an old pal. Like, like you know, just like getting put out to it, pasture. You're like, oh, It's probably older than all of us, isn't it? Pretty much. If you um, take the full li- lifetime of the mission. It, it but was, not older than they you. started developing it in the 80s. So I'm, I feel like I'm ages with Cassini. Okay. And it, it launched when I turned 17, so that, uh, 97 was in transit for quite a long time. Yeah. 2004, I believe it got to Saturn after a whole bunch of really sexy flybys to try and get it there with less fuel. I mean, for those of you that don't know what Cassini is, this is, it, it's it's big. It's about half the size of a double-decker, talk about it in past tense, Sally. It was half the size of a double-decker bus. It's very chunky. It was, so a single-decker bus. <laughs> Nay long and thin. It was kind of like tall and shut up. Oh, okay. The other half of the decker bus. It's like it's something like the second largest uh, probe we've ever launched. Oh, wow. Um, that that doesn't involve uh, Earth orbity stuff. So this was a, a big deal that we got as far as Saturn, uh, and it was powered by plutonium because um, we don't have solar panels, or we didn't have solar panels that would be useful enough at Saturn distances. Uh, and it's been there since 2004 doing some stunning stuff. Very many pretties uh, for to be seen. Uh, if you just Google Cassini, NASA's done a whole bunch of mission highlights and stuff that you can sort of see what it's been doing for the last 13 years in the in the Saturnian system because the system is dynamic. It's very interesting. You've got the 
the classic rings, you've got all of the shepherd moons, you've got Titan, which is technically chunkier than our moon, I believe, in terms of size. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's very interesting on its own. Cassini obviously delivered the lander, so the first time we'd ever landed on another moon other mm. than our own. So that was Huygens. Huygens. Uh, and, so, and everything worked flawlessly. And as is usual in spaceflight, people don't hear about things working nominally. So you hear about things that go boom or have gone wrong. Or uh, So Cassini was just constantly there taking these amazing images and just never really had a missed a beat. It was always doing what it was supposed to. And I'm, I'm, the reason I'm talking about all this now is because they, they decided to kill it rather than leave it behind. And this was actually a, um, a well thought out decision because they, they had two options. It was running out of fuel and it needed fuel to um, keep itself on orbit. It's a very dynamic system. There's lots of moons all over the place and Cassini's, it may be half the size of a double-decker bus, single-decker bus sized. Uh, but uh, it can get gravitational nudges from all of this stuff. And sooner or later, it was going to fall onto one of those things. And rather than take the risk that it was maybe going to contaminate one of those pristine moons, um, Titan and Celadus are the two main examples. They didn't really want to litter it with potentially uh, earthy microbes. Uh, so they thought it was much safer to use the last of its fuel to crash it into Saturn in rather spectacular fashion. And that's exactly what they did. And it died within 30 seconds of, of predictions and was taking data all the way, even, yeah. even using its RCS thrusters to keep it pointed at Earth for the last minute. How were they doing? Because... It's a fine question because they can't give feedback. Because the guys were intrigued by that. They were. I was watching. I, I listened to it live. It was, it was eighty-four crashing. minutes away at yeah. the time, so, so it was so all you can't give any signals to say all oh, left a bit, right a bit. You're missing the. It was must. It was just done purely on some sort of closed loop feedback thing on it. It was told to automatically face its own demise <laughs> and go hurtling into the fireball. Don't be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> go towards the light. I was really impressed because the the obviously they they had live. Uh, events for mm -hmm. this thing and it was you know it is what it is it was a bunch of people like us looking a bit sad because we're, we're like saying goodbye to our pal who's been sending all these uh, brilliant bits of data back and, and but what essentially you were doing was watching the carrier signal is it literally just yes. a little green spike on an oscilloscope this is like old school uh, and that that is the signal that cassini is is sending and that's the thing that helps it um the, the ground stations tune in and know that it's cassini uh, and you saw this little spike just sort of disappear and then come back up ever so slightly and then disappear again and that was it frantically trying to keep pointed and then eventually it's it's off axis and the signal goes and you know at that moment that it's literally burning up uh, in the atmosphere so yeah kind of a dramatic way to go yeah. it's kind of reminiscent of the old sort of viking funeral pyres in a boat yes I think that's a good way to look at it. I keep calling it the Slim Pickens ending, you know, Doctor Strangelove, where he literally rides the nook down. It kind of Spoiler like... Alert. Well, if you were going to make a noise, you would be going, woohoo, <laughs> at that moment. So, yeah. But it's a shame. It's, it's, it I'm is. sad to see it go. Did you guys uh, wave at Saturn when they did that event? Oh, then. Yeah, sorry. Was I was it say, when, was it was, it? when it crashed, it was below the horizon. Was it 2013? I can't even remember now. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was cool. Like from a PR point of view, mm. they knew where Cassini was going to be. They knew it was turning back the way to take a picture of Saturn and its rings, but they knew the Earth was going to be photobombing in the, in the distant distance. Uh, and they told people on Earth to wave at the time that was required. It was a 15 minute exposure, I believe. And they told people to wave. And so for those 15 minutes, they knew how long the photons were going to take to travel <laughs> to Cassini. So there are some photons from my hand in the picture that it took from that wave at Saturn event, which I always thought was quite cool. In case anyone was looking for this image, we should just point out there's a vaguely bluish pixel. 
you, if you zoom right in, I think you can see the moon and the Earth. So yeah. it has a good. So there's a vaguely bluish pixel and a vaguely grayish pixel. Yeah, white <laughs> pixel. <laughs> but Ali's part of that. Some of well, that fact yeah. of humanity. Yeah. Some of that blue that is me. <laughs> in fact, the only thing pretty much of humanity which is not part of that pixel is Cassini taking the picture of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Space yeah. A few others. Yeah, around, yeah. Yeah. Good point. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Just a few. So this was a little bit of cosmic housekeeping. I did read a, an interesting article that was moaning because everyone's like, "Oh, that's that's very tidy because Cassini's going into Saturn," and then it listed about forty different items that Cassini has discarded at some point. So like little covers for instruments and um, shielding just panels. Still in orbit. And it, yeah, they get jettisoned yeah. at points, and there's stuff in solar orbit, and there's stuff still in the Saturnian system, and you've obviously got Huygens left behind as well. So it's it's not completely disappeared nope. there are tiny fragments also, of this also, thing. Yeah, i think we want to crash it in because also you get a heck of a lot of data as it's going into the upper atmosphere which would get in no other way i think yeah, yeah. one of the instruments was designed to sniff um it was a mass spectrometer so mm. to, to tell you mm. what's going into the instrument mm. so they pointed the window of that <laughs> into the direction it was traveling for this last bit so there might be some data on actually tasting saturn's atmosphere for the first I time heard somebody say that there's still quite a few phds worth of data mm. to be to, to PhD to be written based on oh, yeah. uh, data, just some of that, just from the last tumble, but, but also from all the imagery and all. That makes so, me much so we can then go, uh, this is not the last time we're going to talk about Cassini, because at no. some point those papers will There'll come out results. we'll have plenty of excuses, yeah. yeah. Long live Cassini. VIP, sorry. It was Neil deGrasse Tyson, he was vaporising peace. <laughs> vaporising <laughs> peace. <laughs> Uh, so other stories, there was this thing about uh, a black hole, not a big black hole, not a little black hole, and yeah, so this was pretty just the right size black hole. Might not the sound po- immediately exciting, but um, like a bowl of porridge. Sorry, it's, <laughs> it's trying to yeah, Goldilocks. No one. Um, there's a there's a bit of a riddle um, at the moment in in astronomy. Uh, well, there's many a riddle, but but one particularly intriguing one is the the lack of middle sized black holes. So we have black holes which we pretty sure come about at the end of a star's life. So when a star goes boom, if it's big enough, it can turn into a black hole. Um, so this black hole might be a few times the mass of the sun. We also have very strong evidence for very big black holes, which are actually called supermassive black holes, which are maybe a million times the mass of the sun, or even bigger than that. And they sit in the middle of most or of all galaxies, it seems to be. Um, so we have these huge things and these tiny little things. Um, and we, until, well, I would argue, we still don't necessarily have very good evidence for anything in between, really. Um, which is pretty extraordinary really so the question of course is how on earth do you get the really big ones um and sort of those ideas about them forming early in the universe's history but anyway the reason this was intriguing was because a group have been looking at a cloud of um, gas which seems to be moving very very quickly um in a way which suggests that there's an object which is maybe a hundred thousand times the mass of the sun so we've got things which are maybe 10 times the mass of the sun which we know about we've got things which are a million times the mass of the sun we also know about and this fills that gap a little bit um and it's intriguing because, of course, we haven't actually seen a black hole because you can't see them. That's the whole point. Um, they're, they're black. Um, they absorb all the light. Um, so, so I suppose for, for, for those that don't know, the, a black hole is our word to describe uh, things with mass. But the mass is it's small enough and dense enough that uh, the escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. So no light can escape these objects at all. It's just a tiny point mass um, uh, with a given amount of mass in it. And that's how you can talk about the size of a black hole. So even though the thing in the middle we'll never get to see because it's sort of hidden behind this event horizon, it gets called. But um, that's our catch-all term for um, these tiny things that we still don't fully understand. Yeah, they're kind of a sinkhole, really, in which, which physics 
breaks down. Yeah, um, but physics likes to count things. And when you can't count how many of these things there are, we genuinely have a big question mark of how many intermediate mass ones are out there. Where and, are they? I yeah. mean, they must feel like they must exist in order to get big ones, unless they suddenly popped into existence, which is kind of a bit weird. Um, they must have been built up. We think, I mean, most of the theories kind of suggest that they were kind of built up in probably in the early universe when they were they were merging smaller ones coming together to make a big ones. Mm. Um, so what kind of masses are we talking about? So you said stellar mass. So that's like one solar mass, you know, say masses are suns, quite chunky as, as masses go. Or No, it was, it was 100,000. Uh, oh, no, that's the intermediate one. So you go from stellar mass, which is well, literally masses of your sun, yeah. up yeah, to okay. about up to, 10 or 20, maybe well, more. Well, up, up to 35 we know of from the gravitational wave. That's right. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest we've got a measurement for in, in, in the small category. So 35, 35 solar masses. And then and the next the, size is like a million. So it's like, where's the, where's, the, where's the middle ones? It's a big um, gap. The one in the middle of our galaxy is 4 million, I so believe, something like that. Okay. So that gets called Sagittarius A star. I think we spoke about people's attempts to try and take a direct image of the event horizon around that. So more on that if that gets published. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, in between is fun because this one does live in the Milky Way. But I think the paper suggested this intermediate one, if it's real, might have to have been delivered by a smaller galaxy. Yeah. So this might have been the, the middle of something not as chunky as the Milky Way that the Milky Way has since eaten. Well, so all the gas and stars have been dispersed, but you've still got the, the remnant black hole. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Which will slowly get swallowed up by a big one, probably. So maybe in the earlier days of our galaxy, there were a lot more sort of middle-sized ones floating around, which eventually sort of lumped together to make the big one in the middle. Possibly, but that, that, that's quite tricky to do. Um, but it's intriguing that we, we say we haven't really seen it. All we've done is we've seen some gas which is moving very, very quickly, mm. which makes us think that in order for it to move that quickly, it must be near to something which is very small and very massive. Um, and that's all we do. I mean, that's the only reason we know about the, uh, the black hole in the middle of our own galaxy is because we, we see things which are the size of the sun moving at incredible speeds and doing effectively handbrake turns in the middle of space. And it's like, mm. oh, how'll that happen? In a way, I'm lucky because I study active black holes. So these are the yeah. black holes that are literally swallowing stuff and spitting out loads of energy as they do this. So that, that sort of gives away the presence of these things. Yeah. But they're actually quite rare. It's like 1% of galaxies have an active one. And nothing local is incredibly active because uh, at this sort of time in cosmic evolution, the, the black holes that are accreting have sort of died off a little bit and there's not as much food out there for them. So this is why you have to kind of see them by watching other stuff. Yeah. So it's hard work. You see their impact on other things. Mm. Um, which is kind of um, limiting because you've got to wait till something goes near it in order to see it. So luckily this gas seems to be sufficiently close. It, it, it seems to be moving quickly. But it's still only based on kind of modelling of the gas and whether it's the right speed. And so yeah, I wouldn't so say this It wasn't is close a, enough to get swallowed. It just got a kick. And my understanding, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think this is kind of tentative. Ooh, this is interesting, but not necessarily. A, yeah, we've got it. We found we found a... Yeah. I guess it's reassuring because you do want to see they should be out there so if, yeah. we're, if we're not finding them that's even weirder or it's really disappointing it means we found it done oh, <laughs> the great search is over yeah it's interesting though that you talk about this kind of you're inferring from the surroundings to find this object it's very similar to what Catherine was talking about last month about looking for dark matter yeah and this is maybe something we do in astronomy more than a lot of fields of science is that you're inferring the effects and then you're trying to find a trying to infer a cause i suppose by looking at the effects yeah no i think true and i think her, her analogy i remember thinking but it's like sort of looking at the leaves on the trees moving and you're like well something's moving those leaves there must there must be something doing that and and, and you, you can't see the wind but 
you can infer that it exists. Um, and in some ways, it's the same thing. Something is moving these stars around at high velocity. Got to be something pretty damn chunky. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you, you get two things. You get the kind of, I'm going to predict that these black holes should be out there and then design an experiment that can go and look for them. Or you're doing observations and you see something that you can explain. So then you have to go to the theory and sort of say, what what could be doing that? Does that work? Does it not? And yeah. then you get to throw out the the dodgy models. But, We're yeah. somewhere in the middle at the moment, I think, where we kind of we expect them to be there, but we're still not entirely sure where they are. So there's lots yeah. of different theories which we're looking for. And then you get the odd observation. Oh, often those observations are looking for them. Mm. Generally unsuccessful. But bigger telescopes will ultimately play out. I suppose for anyone worried that we're going to get swallowed by a black hole, they're, they're quite rare. I mean, yeah. you know, you need massive stars to even make a stellar mass black hole, and they're rare compared to the normal stars. Our sun's relatively common, but the lowest mass stars are even more common. And then as the mass of the black hole goes up, they, they drop off exponentially, so there's even less of the very massive ones, but yeah. they are still there. And they're actually quite important for galaxy evolution and things as well. So this, this whole chicken and the egg thing will need to get solved at some point. Although the topic of massive stars, I would say Antares fits quite nicely into the massive star category. It does indeed. It's not and usually the one we talk about. It's usually Betelgeuse. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Betelgeuse. And Antares has hit the news recently as well because we've taken images of its surface. We have. Um, so I'm, not, I'm not taking credit for those images. <laughs> <laughs> I have to talk about that. Um, so, so the, the re- yeah, as you say, the reason we're excited is because we've managed to do some rather nifty uh, techniques using multiple telescopes combined together. So this is the the VLTI, the, the Very Large Telescope Interferometer down in Chile, where you get lots of telescopes together and you combine the signal from them to, to get a more detailed image. Basically, yeah. um, without going into too much uh, optical design, because you'll tell me off. Um, <laughs> but the detail you can see of an object, so the kind of, you know, if you want to try and read a newspaper, how far away you can read it on depends on how big your telescope is. Basically, yep. Yep. Big, the bigger the mirror, the, the, the more detail you can see. Yep. Uh, that's really bad optics, probably. But anyway, no. basically. Um, and so, what, but we can't build huge telescopes with hundreds of meter sized mirrors. Um, well, you can do it for radios, which we do it with radio waves. And yeah. You see, like the VLA, and they've got all those dishes. Okay, going off topic. Um, but ultimately, in the um, optical, it's quite tricky to do, but what you can do is sort of put four little telescopes together, combine the signal from them, and then you can get more detail. And they've managed to do this to get this image of a surface of a star, which is frankly awesome, really. Yeah. Um, because basically most stars you look at, however much you look at them, however big your telescope, you just see a point. And you get a bigger telescope and you look at it and you go, oh, it's a point. It's why observing with an amateur telescope can be really depressing. Am I right in thinking this is the first time we've ever directly imaged a star? Because I, I, I think something happened with Betelgeuse. Yeah, we but got... was that a direct image or was that like an inferred... No, I think it was a direct image. I okay, think this so is the second time first. it's been done. Yeah, Beatrice was first. I think the thing they managed to do this time is almost measure the velocity of the structures on the surface. So, so Beetlejuice, I think they'd managed to see, oh, it's got some slight different temperature variation. Here they've seen temperature variation and they've managed to get some idea about velocity. So they know that, unlike because our star, I mean, you look at our star, it's got a pretty uh, active, as we know, it's kind mm-hmm. of got flames, sort of, the wrong word. But it's got it's throwing material off all the time. It's throwing material all the time. That's what causes the aurora. Exactly. You've ever seen aurora borealis? Yeah. That's stuff from the sun hitting our upper atmosphere and interacting with it. Yeah, and it's doing that a lot. Yeah, but in comparison to this star, our sun is pretty boring. Um, our sun is pretty uniform. Um, this thing has got huge, like uh, sort of prominences uh, with velocity coming off at mass speed um, and and quite. Um, 
ununiform surface. Um, mm-hmm. It's a star which is actually much older in life and it's kind of falling to pieces. Um, so, so we're kind of seeing like these big eruptions almost like on, on, on one side, it seems mm-hmm. to be. But, I mean, it's a very, very like. When we say a picture of another star, uh, we're not talking like low resolution loveliness. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh, there's about four pixels across. Uh, That's still impressive because I'm, I'm used to telling people about stars are so far away that they're only ever less than a pixel on your yeah. detector. And yeah. even if you've got a really good detector, it's still going to be a pixel. But if you work really hard, you can just tease out this information. Yeah. So that's that's fun. Brilliant. But you can't do it from any. I mean, Antares nope. is, if you dropped it into our solar system, it would easily swallow us. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, most it's, a big it's, star. it's almost kissing Jupiter, I think. It's, yeah, it's like Betelgeuse is similar. Um, so, yeah, it's officially in the red giant category. Um, so you wouldn't want to be too close to one of these, but at least because it's so chunky, that gives you a chance. And it's, and it's relatively nearby, too. I mean, you can't do this for far away things either. No, no, it has to be close. And, and at some point, it's going to go boom um, and leave behind a, probably a black hole. Um, I'm not quite sure how big it is. So, no. Finish. But, you know, the, this sort of star is the progenitor of those smaller black holes we talked about. Um, and let's say towards the end of its life, it starts surfacing very eruptive and sort of active which which is what we're seeing um, it's basically running out of fuel in the core yeah and there's not too long left no only millions of years yeah uh, uh, anyone feeling optimistic it's gonna go <laughs> boom <laughs> and then <laughs> hundreds of thousands even. probably really you know is that all yeah a blink of an astronomical eye that's cool so, but with a vlti I know you can combine the signal from the four large telescopes, but am I right in thinking that this didn't use the four big 10-meter telescopes? This was the smaller... Yes. Three-meter? No, even smaller. More, if you wish. Okay. Even more than that. Maybe one and a half. Um, there's a whole series of tunnels underneath the, the mountaintop. So there's, there's four big telescopes and there's four smaller telescopes. Um, and all these tunnels are kind of interconnected and you can move mirrors around and you can send light down it. It's absolutely stunning um, and fiendishly difficult because you've got to keep them aligned despite a truck going by 50 miles away causing problems. Um, So um, they use the smaller ones. Um, Part of the problem is for this, it's quite experimental. Um, You've still got, uh, there's a lot of time to set up telescopes. So if you were to use the four, the world's largest telescope to take one measurement, and take a few nights to do it because you've got to set up these equipment and that's not very efficient. Which is why they do a lot of their testing for small telescopes. Because they're using the tall, smaller telescopes, it means that you can only read it on bright things nearby. Um, which is why Antares, you say, it's got a bright star, you can see it with your eyes. So um, when we get the techniques more refined, then maybe you can use the big telescope more often and then you can go fainter and do yeah. something mm. more distant. It's a hard ask asking. I mean, they're all oversubscribed. Massive. <laughs> And uh, so if you're going to shut them all down at the same time, you're all going to have to have a really star. good reason yeah. for wanting a high resolution. You're basically going to take over the world's best astronomical observatory yeah. to do one thing with mm. the entire yeah, eight telescopes worth of equipment. Yeah. That's a lot. A lot of very, very upset astronomers if you do that. It's got to be yeah. a good science case. Yeah. And you've got to be fairly efficient. Things aren't always no. The alignment of these things, setting them up, is absolutely horrific. It is brilliantly impressive. Yeah, be done Am I right in thinking yeah. we have to do this at the redder end of the spectrum? Because as you move to the blue light, the wavelength goes down, so it yeah. becomes even harder to yes. bend it in the way that you need. Uh, so, so, in tra- so this is why radio telescopes have done intrometry for a very long time, because radio waves are a much longer wavelength than up to than visible light or infrared say, light. Is it safe to say it's easier to handle because of that? Or is it just 
or is that if I say yes, all of radio, radio astronomers will come hit me. <laughs> but essentially, yes. Or, yeah, or easier it, to bounce around. Well, the, well yeah. there's a slight difference. Well, that radio telescopes, um, they individually record the signal from each telescope. And then you do and computer you voodoo. Correct it. You combine yeah. it in a computer because you can record information about the photons of light which arrive in radio in a way you can't do for optical. So in optical, you literally have to bounce the light around with mirrors to get it all arrive on the same detector at the same time, um, which is A, just, you know, physically harder because you're trying to move light around but also it's light yes yeah. the precision has to be phenomenal so although on the one hand the vlti takes quite a lot of scientific time and effort and it's locking up the telescopes for a period of time there is more instruments coming to them there is more stuff going to be done with it in the future yeah no there's, there's some dedicated instruments which are coming online things like gravity um there's also um there's espresso which is going to be designed to combine all four the light from all four telescopes for a spectrograph which is a bit easier Yep. Um, and that's going to be that's coming online fairly soon, I think. Actually. Okay. Um, and that's pretty cool. So in that way, you're not combining the light to clever, subtle imagery. You're just getting a bigger bucket to collect light in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get four big buckets at once. And once they get the technique down, it'll be much faster set yeah. up, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, all the astronomers will start to go, "I want that mode." Well, <laughs> that's one of the things that's is happening now. Is these new instruments are coming online because they've proven the technology with other instruments, and it is worth doing this if you can make it efficient. Mm. And that's the key part. And I also wonder with new telescopes like the European Extremely Large Telescope coming online. That's going to be shiny. Um, does that mean that it frees up some time on the VLTs to do more of this sort of work as people want to push towards using the ELT more? Yeah, I think so. You might have more um, with some of your killer science. Go to the ELT. Yeah. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- these are big telescopes. I mean, they're not making many of them and it's a big sky and spectroscopy is one of those things that mm. we just don't have enough telescopes then there's going to be too many targets to point at in the next 10 years so yeah um another intriguing thing as well is that as i heard somebody arguing about they're saying there's been like i don't know 15 years of vlt um probably more than that 20 years of vlt tens of thousands of hours of observing time if you want to do something interesting with vlt you either need a lot of time or you need some really quite clever instrumentation i mean that's a gross implication obviously there's still great papers coming out of it but a lot of the lower hanging fruit would have been done um, which is why I have to build a new telescope. Why you want to build a yep. whopping great big forty meter telescope? Could go um, wider, deeper, faster. Yeah, <laughs> or you do something really clever with interferometry. Yeah. So I think actually, as time goes on, they'll probably see more and more interferometry being done. Uh, interferometry. I said again, hard word to say. Um, so um, I, I think I think you will see see more of it being done. Um, it should just be renamed optical voodoo. <laughs> it does kind of feel a bit mad. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not disinclined to agree with that. I can say. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of astronomers are going to have to learn completely new techniques for uh, how you're yeah. observing, which has been the case in radio. I mean, radio yeah, went through this well, well a number of years ago, tens of years ago. They started doing the interferometry, and now it's the standard technique in radio. And you have to wonder, in twenty, fifty years' time, is it going to be standard in optical as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument that the VLT might be the biggest telescope we ever built. Because next time we won't build a 100 meter telescope, we'll build two ELTs next to each other and combine the beam. Um, because it might, might be, we might be sufficiently sophisticated at our interferometry techniques in, in 30 years when we're looking at the next ELT. Mm. 
or the E E E E L T. That's the point, isn't there? A binocular telescope. What's that yeah. called again? What's this? The L B T. Large, large, large binocular telescope. <laughs> the L B T. Does something about like this. Yeah, we haven't spoken about that before, but it's essentially that exactly that. Two optical yeah. telescopes yeah. in binocular mode. But it is the two of them are fixed together, so it's a bit different, and they're right next to each other. So it's a much simpler way to combine the light. Do they always get used together, or do they sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. they're literally on the same map. Oh, that's yeah. good to know because you can only point them at. The yeah, it works like a pair of binoculars essentially. So okay. it's yeah. another yeah. step towards this so idea. Very clever. I idea. need to do more homework, but I've just got this nice image of just a giant pair of binoculars on the side <laughs> of the mountain, which is probably yeah. not even close. To how it it's works. surprisingly close, actually. <laughs> Um, Good task. But yeah, it means we're questioning that by the time we're all retiring from our, our jobs and they're building, and they're building the next telescope. telescope, is it going to be two 40 meter telescopes spaced 100 meters apart or is it going to be one 100 meter telescope? I'm all about space based interferometry, me. Uh, when you start having networks that, yeah, oh, you, you get the baseline wide enough, yeah, the, yeah, the entire size of your solar system, two mirrors. Oh, yeah, that, that would Everyone ever wonders, yes, astronomers like to have these fanciful dreams that then one of us engineers has to go and fix and build. That's <laughs> cool progress. Oh, right, we're going to call it here, I think, before I start grumbling anymore. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck with Hypercam. Thanks. <laughs>